It's Luke 8, 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. And he was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For you had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a, rebo- into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house, and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Well, it's good to be back uh, after four weeks. Um, I just want to say um, you all have loved Mark and I really well, and I thank you for that. Uh, the meals were wonderful. I had originally planned on taking two Sundays off, and uh, the deacons got together um, about a week into my paternity leave and said, Mike's a fool. He's going to need more than that, and they were right. Um, it would have been a disaster, and, uh, and you all, out of your own time, um, gave me four weeks. I'm just really grateful, and I've, I've felt really loved. Mark and I both have, so thank you for that. And it's really good to be back. I miss, I miss preaching when I, when I don't get to preach. So let's pray. Father, remind us who is speaking right now. Lord, we know that there is an evil one who wants to, if he cannot destroy us, he wants to distract us, discourage us, keep us from living fruitful lives to your glory but we know that there are words of life in your word that give us life that we need like water and a dry land. So may you speak powerfully through your word this morning. May I um, recede into the background, give me skill, but may Christ, may you be just center, front and center. Pray all these things in your holy name. 
Amen. Well, I have been very encouraged with the recent um, vaccine, uh, you know, early data analyses that have come out. Uh, Pfizer um, has finished their, their, their data gathering for at least the initial, um, I don't know what the the scientific words are, but enough that they can like move forward to production. They found that their their vaccine is 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 just a little bit less than ninety five percent effective at preventing the transmission. And you know, the last nine months have felt like this weird, like nightmarish alternative reality that we're living in that won't end. And with these vaccines actually seeming to be very effective, uh, there's now kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we're looking at months if everything goes. As, as hoped, um, when these could be widely available enough that we could begin to move beyond the pandemic. So that's, that's like a good thing that has been good news, which is good news we've really needed. Um, now, part of the government's um, kind of uh, plan to, to help vaccine companies has been this program called Operation Warp Speed, which maybe you've heard about in the news. Um, and I just have to pause there. If there is proof that scientists and government workers are nerds, like look, Warp Speed, operate like Star Trek anyone? Okay, a bunch of Trekkie nerds, like, and they're like, oh, let's call it Operation Warp Speed. Anyways, um, that's supposed to like aid, give financial aid to research companies to develop this vaccine. So for Pfizer, the U.S. has pre-purchased $2 billion of doses of whatever vaccine they're going to make. And the idea there is, is there's a guaranteed sale, so as soon as Pfizer kind of gets the go-ahead from the FDA, boom, they can hit the ground running, making as many uh, vaccines as they can so that there could be some available for, you know, healthcare workers, retirement homes by as early as the end of December. That's exciting. So imagine everything goes as planned, FDA gives approval, um, and late December comes, and there's no vaccines. And so, uh, you know, congressmen are starting to contact the company, the government has given them $2 billion to make vaccines, They're like, where are the vaccines? And the companies, you know, they're, they're hard to get over the Christmas break, but it comes back January 1st, and they say, well, we haven't, we haven't made any vaccines. That's not what we use the money for. And then there's a congressional investigation, and they find out that they used that $2 billion to build new facilities and, and upgrade their laboratory equipment and, and give big Christmas bonuses to their senior executives. And, and, and all you get from the company is a, is a little press release saying, our apologies. We didn't realize that that is what the money was for. We thought the government was just being generous with that $2 billion. Now, if that really happened, that's an absurd scenario, but if that really happened, I mean, with the last nine months in view, I think the heads would roll. I think there would be, you know, I don't know, there would be bad things happening to Pfizer Corporation um, because the government is going to give them that money with a purpose. It's not just the government being generous around holidays. It's giving them this money with a purpose to make vaccines. Now, the interesting thing is, 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 is a pandemic, even one as, as dangerous and as deadly as the, as the coronavirus pandemic, is, is, is at the end of the day, small potatoes when you compare it to the cosmic realities that we have been freed from through the power of Jesus Christ. The power of sin, the power of, of, of Satan. But just like with Pfizer, when Christ exerts his power in our lives to free us, to save us, to make us his own, there's a purpose behind it. And that purpose is that we then might go out as agents of that salvation and declare to others what God has done in our lives. Christ's power comes to us as a missionary power. 
That's what we're going to see from our text this morning. Now, before we, we get into our, our, uh, our text, there we go. My headpiece is giving me problems. Um, let's just do a quick uh, recap. It's been four weeks since we were in Luke last. If you remember the story that we see in verses 22 to 25, Jesus and his disciples are crossing a lake. A great storm comes on the lake. Jesus is sleeping. His disciples wake him up and like, Jesus, we're all literally drowning. What are you doing? And Jesus wakes up and does this very strange thing. He speaks to the wind and the waves. And then something even crazier happens that the wind and the waves obey him. And there's calm. And his disciples are terrified at this incredible show of power. And they ask this very basic question in verse 25. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? The point was that, look, Jesus is not just demonstrating some kind of like great human strength, like he's just this very intelligent, very strong person. The point is that Jesus is doing things humans can't do. That's why they say, who then is this? And that question, who then is this, is going to be the governing question for the story we're looking at this morning, and then also the story that we'll get to after our Advent series. So I'll probably have to do another recap in January when we finally get back to Luke. But that's the question, is Jesus continues to do stuff that Humans just can't do. Who then is this? So with that, let's go ahead. Well, actually, let me, let me give a roadmap real quick. So we have, we're going to have two parts this morning in answering this question of who then is this. And the first is going to cover the scope of Jesus' power and authority. His power and authority to say the scope of that power. The second portion I'm going to be focusing on is the purpose of that power. Again, that this power is great, but it's given to us with a purpose, which is to make us a missionary community. So with that, let's go ahead and look at verses 26 to 33, and I'll read it out loud for us. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus?' Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down into the steep bank, into the lake, and drowned. Now to get at the, uh, the, the setting here, he mentions this happens in the country of the Gerasenes. To be honest, we're not 100% sure where this is. Our knowledge of ancient Israel is just not that detailed that we know where every single little town and village is. But what's pretty clear and what is commonly agreed on is that this town would have been in the region of what's called the Decapolis. The Decapolis, if you think deca, like 10, decade, it was a, a, a 10 Greco-Roman cities that were built in the decades before Jesus was born. And the important thing is that these were Greco-Roman cities. So this is a Gentile region in the midst of the country of Israel. We've been predominantly non-Jewish people living in this area. And so the, the relevance for us is that most of the people that Jesus is interacting with, or all of the people he's interacting with in this story, are not Jews. 
So the man possessed by a demon would have been a Gentile. The townspeople would have been Gentiles. And that's significant because Jesus' ministry is almost completely towards the people of Israel. And so when he does something different, when he ministers to someone who's not part of the nation of Israel, it's significant. We're getting shadows or hints of the fact that the movement that Jesus is starting is never meant to be just a parochial, local thing, but something that would reach to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing hints of that already in this story. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus, or that we've seen instances of Jesus confronting demonic forces, but it's certainly the most detailed. In chapter 4, if you remember, his ministry is described as teaching, healing, and casting out evil spirits. And we get detailed perspective, or, or, or descriptions of healings when he heals the man with paralysis, um, when he raises to life the young man. But this is the first detailed description we get of Jesus' confrontation with evil forces. And at the very least, this is a pretty sobering picture, a picture of this man and his oppression, possession, and affliction by these demonic forces. As we read the story, we see that these demonic forces that are, that are afflicting this man and that confront Jesus are a strength that overwhelms all human help. Um, at one point, it says, uh, well, so, let me back up. So when we, when we meet this man, he's completely alone. He's living among tombs that would not have been normal in the ancient Near East any more than it would be normal for a man to camp out in a cemetery. He's naked. Uh, there's, there, there's nothing like more, um, what's the word, humiliating than for a grown-up to be naked when they're, not in, like, when they're not intending to be. Or even if they are intending to be, it's still humiliating. A man living by himself, completely isolated from relational ties. He had not always been like that, though, which is what we forget. And in fact, there had been people who had tried to help him. It says in verse 29 that at times he had been bound with chains and shackles, and he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon to the desert. We read that, we think, well, wow, they were putting him in jail? That's not very helpful. But even today, doctors, when there's a patient who is in danger of, of hurting themselves, will restrain them. It's an act of caring for the person. And this man, at some point, people had tried to restrain him because he's clearly going to harm himself. In fact, in the, in, in the Mark uh, narrative of this story, it mentions that he was also cutting himself with stones. And so there's evidence of people trying to help him. We also forget the fact that, I mean, he, just like every human being ever alive, he had a mother and a father who very likely would have been alive who had been witnessing his kind of slow devolution into losing his mind and coming to this place, who would have tried to help and stop him. Maybe they were part of those people who were trying to restrain him. Maybe he was married and had kids. We don't, we don't know. But we know that he had a family community who was trying to care for him. But here's the thing. He would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. He was beyond human help. There were people who were trying to help him but this overwhelming demonic force was beyond human help. That is a terrifying place to be. You never want to be in a hospital dying and have them say, we, we can't do anything to help you. To be beyond the scope of human help is a terrifying place to be. That is a powerful force that, not even, that no human aid can counteract. And that is the force that Jesus is confronting here. But it's not just a, a strength that overwhelms human help. It's a strength that overwhelms the man himself. His own self-defense is his own control over himself. Look at verse 30. When Jesus speaks to the man, he says, what is your name? And who answers him? 
legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart the abyss. Do you get what's happening? Jesus speaks to the man, and it's not the man who responds. It's the demons who respond. And from the way that he's living, which is obviously not his best life now, like this is not how someone would normally live who is in full control of their rational faculties. This man has lost control of himself. That is terrifying. Look, there is one thing to be you know, coerced and oppressed by external forces. There are dictatorial powers that, that, that exhibit incredible power over their population to subdue them. Just look at North Korea. If you've watched documentaries on how much the government is able to control the people of North Korea and oppress them. But yet every dictator in their heart has a little fear of what happens if the people band together and decide one day we've had enough. They can control the outside, they can't control the inside, but this demonic force is controlling the inside. Do you get how terrifying this is? This man is beyond human help. He's lost control of himself. He is beyond the pale of any human help, anything that could do to alleviate his situation. This is not a kind of haunted house, chills up my spine, horror movie that we pay money to entertain ourselves. This is tragic. This is terrifying. This is horrible. And this is the force that Jesus confronts. Now, before we, before we get into the scope of Jesus' power, I want to draw out kind of two theological truths that we see from this story. And the first theological truth is that demonic evil is real, and it is destructive. Demonic evil is real, and it is destructive. I had a friend in middle school who uh, attended and was a member at a, a Pentecostal church, and I'm going to qualify this. There are good Pentecostal churches and there are bad Pentecostal churches, just like there are good Baptist churches and there are bad Baptist churches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was not one of the good Pentecostal churches. They did some really crazy stuff, and I could get into details, I won't. But I remember one time her telling me that um, she was in her bedroom, and she began to sense this overwhelming demonic force. And she became convinced that her, this book that she had was, was possessed by a demon. So she exercised the demon from the book, and then she threw the book out. There is nowhere in the Bible where there is evidence of demons possessing inanimate objects. I mean, these demons are asking Jesus not to send them out into the world of inanimate objects. There's no purpose why a demon would possess a book. That's one extreme, where we're seeing demons under every rock, every gray cloud is a demon, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not our problem. <laughs> we're on the other extreme, where we forget that demonic forces are a real thing. And we're kind of embarrassed to talk about it. Like, that's what the crazies talk about. We forget that, that behind reality, there's a cosmic battle that is occurring every day of our lives. And as Ephesians 6 puts it, this is a battle that is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whereas Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, you have an adversary. He is the devil and he is like a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. That's the reality. When you woke up this morning, someone was trying to destroy you. When you were on your way to church, someone was trying to destroy you. As you're trying to log in and get on Facebook and watch online, someone is trying to destroy you. That is the spiritual reality. 
that we forget, especially in the West. That's just our cultural world we swim in. We forget what's happening behind the world movements, behind the movements of history. There is a cosmic warfare, and we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And if he can't destroy us, to do everything he can to keep us from being fruitful in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Demonic evil is real. But, you know, second, demonic evil is not just real, but it's also destructive. Demonic evil is real, and it's destructive. Now, I'm going to draw a distinction between sin and demonic evil, and then also lump them back together, so you just hear me out here for a second. There is obviously a difference between sin and demonic evil. So you ever heard the person say, the devil made me do it, <laughs> therefore I don't have to take responsibility? That's usually not the case. Usually we sin because our own desires within our hearts lead us towards that. We have sinful flesh. So even though we are redeemed, it's very true that we are sinner saints. We are still people who struggle with the old person, with sinful tendencies, and so when we sin, it's more often than not our own desires. That being said, you can't separate sin and demonic evil too far because Satan is the author of sin. My whole point in saying that is that when I say demonic evil is destructive, you could very easily also say sin is destructive, although demonic evil is more what's in view in this story. Demonic evil and sin is destructive. We see what the ultimate end of sin is. Separation from God, separation from relational ties, separation from everything that is good, true, and beautiful. That's, that's, that's where sin is going. That stampede of the pigs into the, into the water to be drowned. That is, that is where sin, every sin, that is the ultimate end where it ends up. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had this thing called D.A.R.E. Um, it was a, like a government education program, drug abuse resistance education. I'm just curious, who, who went through that in elementary school? Okay, I think it's, yeah, so like our college students are like, no. I think it stopped right after, you know, maybe the 90s. Um, but it was this government education program to try to get kids not to do drugs, which makes sense. Um, and I remember this one poster in a, in a D.A.R.E. Uh, class, and it said, um, if your outside looked like your inside, no one would smoke and a picture of a girl, and basically, have you seen pictures of, like, you know, smokers' lungs, and they're all, like, gross and discolored? That was, like, what her skin looked like. And so the idea is, like, look, if your outside looked as bad as your lungs do when you smoke, no one would smoke, and that's probably true. That's what we're getting here in this story. I can tell you sin is destructive, but it stays very abstract, and it's not going to motivate us to change our lives. But I point to this man's life, and I say, look, this is what sin is leading towards, well, that, that changes the ballgame. That gives us a vivid picture of what is true. We like, we like to think in terms of things like, you know, there are little sins, quote, quote, little sins. Well, I can handle this sin, or like, right, like everyone's doing it, or I, I don't know, it's not a big deal, it's not like I'm killing somebody, but every sin, every moment of pride, every moment of, of, of sinful anger, of arrogance, of envy, of looking at pornography, whatever it may be for you, this is the end to which it's leading. Separation from God. Separation of all relational connections. And ultimately an end of everything that is good, true, and beautiful in this life. This man, the sobering picture of this man is showing us where sin is ending. All demonic evil, all sin, it's real, 
and it's incredibly destructive. That's theological truth number one. Theological truth number two, though, is that yes, demonic evil is real, it's powerful, but Jesus' authority and saving power is even greater. Jesus' authority and saving power is even greater. We have to look at the demon's reaction when they confront Jesus. And we've been building this up. This is a multitude of demonic forces who have power that, that is beyond human help, that overwhelms this man's own ability to control himself. What happens when Jesus confronts him? Verse 28, and when he saw Jesus, and again, remember, this is not the man speaking. These are the demonic forces within him who have overwhelmed this man's psyche. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. God, it's almost anticlimactic, right? It's building us up as great contest, and there's no contest. It's just immediate submission and groveling on the side of the spiritual forces that are opposed to Jesus. And here's the thing that's crazy. This is Jesus' veiled presence. This is not Jesus in his full glory and manifestation. This is in his veiled divinity and presence that he exhibited while on earth. Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, who though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And there's a truth that when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he veiled his glory and power and divinity as he became a genuine human. That's why people weren't just falling down flat on their faces every time Jesus showed up. Whereas when God shows up in his full divinity, everyone's on their face, whether it's God, I love you, or God, I hate you. They're all on their face. This is the reaction to a demon encountering Jesus' veiled presence. What will happen when he comes at the end of time to, to, to bring an end to all that is evil? There's no contest here. Yes, these demonic forces are real. They're sobering in their power and the destructive uh, extent of their work. But when it confronts Jesus, there is no contest. Jesus' authority and saving power is greater still. And the reason that the demons are terrified is they recognize that Jesus has what you would call eschatological power. Eschatological is a theological term we use, and we want to describe the end of time. Christianity is a story. It's not a, 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 an infinite ongoing of time, but it's a story with an narrative arc. Everything is leading towards something. It's going to end. One day it will say the end, last page, and that's eternity. And the demons realize that Jesus has power over where everything is going. And we know that's what they're afraid of because of what they tell Jesus. In verse 32, they, or 31, they beg him, don't command us to depart into the abyss. And you first read that, and you're like, I don't know, the abyss? Like, what does that mean? In the New Testament, the abyss can mean two different things. It can mean either the place of the dead, like literally where people go when they die before the final resurrection. So when you read the Apostles' Creed, and it says that Jesus died and descended into the dead, that's what we're talking about. But the other use of the abyss is a place of, um, in, uh, 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 where, where basically demonic forces are held against their will. Not the, it's not the right wording, but anyways, it, it, um, you get the idea. And we see this usage actually in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This idea of the abyss being an imprisonment. That was the word I was looking for, imprisonment of evil powers. 
says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, which actually is the abyss. In Greek, it's the same word. And a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, putting aside all the debates about the millennium, the point is that the abyss is a place of imprisonment. With, where, where evil forces, the devil himself is held against his will for as long as God wants. The, the demonic forces realize when they encounter Jesus that this is the one who holds that kind of authority and power. This is the one whom they're dealing with, even in his kind of veiled divinity in his earthly ministry. And so the demons are terrified. Jesus' authority and saving power is greater still. So, so, what difference does this make for us? Where does this lead us? What's the point of this kind of, kind of touching down for us today? Evil and sin has brought disorder and destruction and devastation to our world, and we feel that. We feel that in a very real way. We're, <laughs> I wish we could say we were no longer in, in the election season, but it seems to just follow after us. It's like, please be done. But man, what a time of division we live in and discord. And we all recognize that. We feel that. Even non-Christians recognize, okay, this is not how I want it to be. And I watched, I watched um, Joe Biden's victory speech. And um, what struck me from the victory speech was, was, was the euphoria, just to be honest. It felt like Christmas morning in terms of just watching people's reactions and the joy and the optimism and the hope because we all recognize that what's going on, the way this world is working, there's something seriously broken. Now, obviously, people who voted for Donald Trump thought he would be better for that. People who voted for Joe Biden thought he would be better for that. That doesn't matter. My point is, is we all recognize something's really wrong, and the hope is this man could bring healing and peace. And there was just euphoria over it. Well, that's tapping into a truth. Yes, we live in a world where there's cosmic warfare. Things are discordant and broken and not the way they're meant to be. But I tell you what, Joe Biden will not live up to those hopes. There's no president who could live up to those hopes. Because the problem is not one of, of education reform or criminal justice reform or efficient government or good legislation. The problem is one of sin and blindness and forces of evil that are far beyond our, our, our power to address under our own human means. This man's story shows the plight of every human, every single one of us. We were this man at one point. may not have looked like it, but in a spiritual way, we were very much this man, cut off from God, cut off from relationship, on a path towards destruction. What does it mean to be saved? I'm not changing the subject. It's the same subject. Follow me here. What does it mean to be saved? A lot of times we think, well, okay, if I believe certain things about Jesus, that he's the son of God, that, you know, he saved me, okay. Okay. Or, you know, I, I walk an aisle. That's, that's what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved is when we realize that we are this man. And the sense of desperation that he had of not even being in control of himself, much less of being able to do anything, when that grips our hearts. The gospel is that, look, 
time's up. We are all spiritually in debt up to our eyeballs, and we thought we were paying it off. We thought we were keeping it in check. I go to church, I read my Bible, I'm a decent human being. We thought we were keeping it in check, and then all of a sudden the judge calls your debt due, and it is far beyond your ability to ever pay back. But God in his mercy and his kindness and his compassion has borne your debt for you at the cost of his own son. Look, when that reality grips us in the heart, when we feel that desperation of, oh, I have no hope, I'm this man completely overwhelmed and blinded by my own sin. I have no ability to please God. And then I really look to Jesus as like the only thing that can help me or save me. That's salvation. That's a matter of the heart. And this man's story gives us such a a visible, a visible understanding of what that looks like. Praise God for his word. We see the scope of Jesus' authority and power that though the cosmic forces arrayed against him are great, his authority and saving power is greater still. We see the scope of Jesus' authority and power. But second, we also see the intent of Jesus' power. And his intent, is a, his power is a missionary power. It's given to a, to, to, for us to be a mission-oriented people. Let's look at verses 34 to 39. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus' power is a missionary power. There's a purpose of Jesus' saving power. One thing I want to point out is that this man begs Jesus to be with him. I want to just pause this for a second. He says, Jesus, let me go with you. That is a good thing. Right? Isn't that the point? To be in the presence of our Lord? It's very similar to Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. But Jesus says no. Why would Jesus ever say no to someone being in his presence, literally following the earthly presence of our Lord? I think this is because Jesus' power, Jesus' ministry is a missionary ministry. It's a missionary power. Jesus didn't save this man just so that he could kind of have his spiritual tank filled or go on living however he wanted. He saved him with a purpose. And that was to go and declare all that God had done for him to other people. Jesus' power is a missionary power. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, 1 Peter 2.9 says the same thing. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's all that God has done for us. He's made us his people. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Crazy thing is that Jesus tells this man to spend less time with him or that he may go and tell others about what Jesus has done for him. I think it's a little bit paradigm shifting if we let this sink in enough. One thing I've I mentioned before is that COVID has given us, that, you know, the silver lining in COVID is that it, is, it has moved everything down to the most bare essentials, which is Sunday morning gathering, basic discipleship. We had to cut out everything. And this is an opportunity to ask, okay, why are we here? What are we doing as a church? We're not just a service propagator, right? We don't just want to have services indefinitely. But we're doing something. And the intent and, and, and what it is that we are doing here is we're, we're supposed to be a missionary community. As those who've been saved out of darkness and brought into God's holy light to go and declare that to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family members. That's what we're here to do. And sometimes, I'm going to explain this because this may sound heretical, but sometimes staying with Jesus is not the same thing as obeying Jesus. Sometimes in churches, we'll have, we'll have activities that could be called like staying with Jesus. So we have Bible studies, we have prayer meetings, we have Sunday school classes, we have men's and women's discipleship groups, we have small groups. And so we think, well, we're spending all this time with God's people, we're doing all these things in church, we're good. But we can be doing all of that, but yet still be living in disobedience. Because what Christ has called us to do is to go and make disciples, to receive the, the forgiveness and the healing and the transformation he gives to us and then go and declare that to everyone. And at the end of the day, the power of Jesus is directly, cannot, directly tied to missionary activity. His power saves us and then his power goes with us. The very end of Matthew, after he's given the great commission, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it ends with, behold, I am with you always. Jesus' presence goes with us when we step out in mission. The flip side of that is oftentimes in church, when we, when we have a lot of church activities, Bible studies, Sunday school, prayer meeting, but we are not going out in any significant way. The power of Jesus isn't with us. And so we have prayer meetings that are wrote. We have Bible studies that devolve into intellectual debates on finer points of theology. But no lives are being changed. Because the power of God is not with us. Jesus' power is a missionary power. And if we want to experience the closeness of Jesus Christ, we step out in mission and he meets us there. Behold, I am with you to the ends of the age. The question has been haunting me last month. Okay, if this, is, if, this is the, if this is why Jesus has saved us, that we may be a missionary community, that I may go and declare his greatness, if that's why Jesus saved me, if that's, if that's my main purpose of being here on this planet, have I ever exhausted myself trying to take the gospel to my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers, like put in the relational time and intentionality and, 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 and just, yeah, sheer time it takes to build relationships. Have I ever exhausted myself? 
I mean, aside from like a missions trip, no. I graduated seminary in three years while my wife was in residency and I also was raising two kids and I started a pioneer in college ministry at a very dark campus. I exhausted myself to do all that. Two months ago, I exhausted myself to paint my house so I could get it ready for, to sell it. I'll exhaust myself. You will exhaust yourself for things that matter. Have I ever exhausted myself for the sake of taking the gospel to those who know it? And this is what's really broken me. Have I even come close? Jesus' power is a missionary power. And I feel like a lot of times I've been this man who's been delivered and Jesus says, no, stay. And I say, no, I don't want to. And maybe, maybe if you search your heart, you'll agree with that. And so I think the first reaction for many of us is just introspection and honest repentance and confession that we have not lived up to what Jesus has called us to do and he accepts us and he restores us. But here's my word of promise for us as we go. Jesus also said in Matthew 9, the same one who said, go and make disciples, he said this, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are few. It's easy for us to think we live in this post-Christian world. My neighbors don't want to hear about Jesus. My coworkers don't want to hear about Jesus. My family doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And that is just not true. The reason we don't see our neighbors coming to Christ and our friends coming to Christ and our coworkers coming to Christ is not because the harvest isn't plentiful, it's because we have not labored. The harvest is plentiful. Your neighborhood is, a, is like a harvest waiting. If you will just labor for that, the harvest is plentiful. And when you step out in faith, not only can you know the harvest is plentiful, but Jesus, the exalted, risen Jesus, whose power and authority is greater than any force that may oppose you, it goes with you. Behold, I am with you to the ends of the ages. Jesus has saved us for a purpose that we may be a community that declares his praises, that labors for that, to the glory of God himself. See the harvest and see the risen Lord who will be with you when you go forth. Let me pray. Jesus, we we are humbled in your presence.